welcome to this episode of Sleep and Relax ASMR. In this episode, we read the essay published on publicdomainreview.org titled The Strangely Troubled Life of Digby Magworth Dolbin. Here is the overview. In 1911, the soon-to-be poet laureate Robert Bridges published the poem of Digby Magworth Dolbin, a school friend who had drowned to death at the age of 19 almost half a century earlier. Carl Miller looks at Bridges' lengthy introduction in which he tells of the short and tragic life of the boy with whom fellow poet Gerard Manley Hopkins was reportedly besotted. B-E-S-O-T. I was interested in reading this piece because I'm a fan of interesting tales and, you know, individuals, especially those that have had very fortunate or unfortunate lives. You know, most of us, I believe, live somewhere in the middle. Good and bad things happen over the course of time, but then there are outliers that seemingly have all the good, others all the bad, you know, metaphorically speaking, of course. So the title kind of caught my attention and, you know, just with that overview, I thought it'd be worth uh, learning about this uh, very interesting individual. Before jumping into the episode, I'd like to say a thank you to Helix for being today's sponsor. Not being able to get a good night's rest because you are sleeping on a noisy, flattened mattress that is 15 years old is no joke and you don't have to put up with it. Helix makes customized mattresses based on your body type, mattress firmness preference, and sleep preference. Anywhere from soft to firm for everyone of all shapes and sizes, Helix has a perfect mattress for you. To figure out which is the right one for you, just visit helixsleep.com relax, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they will match you with a customized mattress. I took the quiz and was paired with the Helix Dusk because I wanted something with medium firmness and because I sleep in different positions throughout the night. And after over a year, I'm still sleeping better than ever, and typically I fall asleep right away. But you don't need to take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one best overall mattress for 2019 and 2020 by Wired Magazine and GQ. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. So they'll come and pick it up for you if you don't love it, but I'm sure you will. So so what are you waiting for? Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com relax. That's helix, H-E-L-I-X, sleep.com slash relax for up to $200 off. So thanks Helix and enjoy that because they have fantastic products. So without further ado, let us begin the strangely troubled life of Digby Macworth Dolbin by Carl Miller. Once again, we start with the overview. Just to refresh your memory. In 1911, the soon-to-be poet laureate Robert Bridges published the poems of Digby Mackworth Dolbin, a school friend who had drowned to death at the age of 19 almost half a century earlier. 
Carl Miller looks at Bridges' lengthy introduction in which he tells the short and tragic life of the boy with whom fellow poet Gerard Manley Hopkins was reportedly besited. Popular success came late in life to Robert Bridges, not that he much cared. When the journalist finally descended on his house in the summer of 1913, he responded first with indifference and then not at all, leaving their importuning knocks unanswered. Should have made this text slightly larger before reading. One might suspect that he had learned to hate the press from Tennyson, whose grand performance at Poet and Sage had burned the Victorians of Bridges' generation with an interpretation of the role whose hoary magic they could never quite forget. However, much they'd come to hate the trick, but Bridges' own reserve was deeply felt and honestly acquired. He was born in 1844 into a wealthy family of the Kentish gentry, and such he had no need of ever living by his pen. He loved poetry, but studied medicine, believing that a physician's practice would ground his literary efforts in what a platitudinous friend will later call, quote, a knowledge of men, end quote. He intended to retire at the age of 40 to a life of writing, but he found after all that a little knowledge of men goes a long way. And following a serious illness, he decided to pack in his doctor's kit ahead of schedule. Raised as he had been among a tribe of rentiers whose arbitrary privilege was dignified by time and this speciousness of heraldry, he had a certain grandeur of manner which his success as a college oarsman had only reinforced. Physically imposing, he was in his later years likened to Olympian Zeus, with white luxuriance of beard and fingernails that had been hardened into talons by his unwillingness to bathe in water that was anything but cold. If he seemed imperious from a distance, he was among his friends good-natured, frank, and easy. His lordliness remained confined to the domain of literature, where he was ironized by the almost total apathy with which work was publicly received. His poems he had privately printed in small editions, austerely designed but sumptuously made and costly. His eccentric publishing program was part of a more general revival of interest in the craft traditions of bookmaking that was in the air. Connoisseurs, ascetes, and antiquarians Antiquarians, yes. Antiquarians hunted stalls and attics and forgotten treasures and rejected masterpieces, and small presses, presses sprung up to produce new volumes that could be shelved with justice among those with bindings in the private dusk of any velvet curtained studied. Bridges' own books were of this species, printed on handmade paper and set in the obsolete obsolescent type that a friend had found at the Clarendon Press in Oxford under a century of dust. His very limited impressions tended to sell out. They were even profitable, but the demand for them was not so great that any avaricious publishers came calling. And he grew old in this career, esteemed by some, but never in fashion, even as the fashion swung over the over overpiness of the 1890s to be jaded sobriety 
to the Jay's variety that marked the century's end. But soon Bridges found himself in a new position. An editor at the Oxford University Press plumped for his inclusion in the Oxford Poets series. The result, published in 1912, gathered together for the first time into an inexpensive volume the fruit of Bridges' lonely and uncompromising art, and its first year sold an astonishing 27,000 copies. On this swelling wave of approbation, he would be appointed Poet Laureate. At the age of 69, Robert Bridges was famous. If he had thought that his eighth, great, his eighth decade on earth would afford him dignified repose, he had been mistaken. It brought only a war, and as the imperial poet, it fell to him to invoke the muse as young men went to slaughter by the millions. When the war was over, he turned from civic work to The Testament of Beauty, a book-length poem in which he laid out his philosophy of life. It was not a Christian philosophy, Though he never joined the small number of embattled public atheists, he had by the end completely discarded the religious enthusiasm of his youth and discovered in its place a mild sort of pagan spirituality shaped by the writings of Plato and Lucretius. But he had once been Christian, and he had, been once, he had once been ardent, and even if the experience had failed to furnish him with any lasting faith, it at least given him lifelong friends. As a boy, Bridges experienced the power of a strain of romantic Christianity peculiar to this time. The direction of the Church of England was in heavily disputed, from below by evangelicals who pushed for Protestant austerity, and from above by a movement that sought to emphasize the Anglican communion's share in the medieval traditions of the Catholic Church. In Oxford in the 1830s, these high church Anglicans had hammered their theology into a fine gold leaf. They were dazzled by the beauty of their work, but failed to see it was far too fragile to survive the ecclesiastic contest it invited. Where delicate theology failed, bold aesthetics would have a trial. As doctrinal points receded into the background, the high church Anglicans, Anglicans began to indulge a taste for pageantry and rituals shared by their pre-Raphaelite contemporaries. They dreamed of jeweled chalices and Semite robes, the aromatic haze of incense, and at times the livid traces of the scorch. Bridges fell in with the high church set at school. As boys, they had no opportunity to test their radical spirit no chance to strike it against the hard surfaces of life. To watch the sparks and see whether its cutting edge grew sharp or dull, but they were earnest in their fantasy. In later years their paths diverged. Some, like Bridges, lost their zeal and woke up from the dream, while others submerged themselves more deeply in it, drifting steadily towards the Catholic Church. But before this happened, Bridges met two important friends, they shared his love of poetry, a passion for which would abide even after religious enthusiasm ceased to offer any common ground. For just as Bridges was abandoning his high church scruples, these two friends were planning, 
quite independently of one another to join the Church of Rome. They both had died young, though decades apart, and in old age Bridges looked back on them, flushed with his own unaccepted, unexpected success, remembering the literary sustenance that these friendships had given him in his youthful ambitions and in his middle-aged obscurity. As Europe sleepwalked towards the Great War, this elderly Victorian neo-pagan gathered his old manuscripts of his two intensely Christian friends for publication. It was not only an exercise in nostalgia. One of these friends was Gerard Hopkins, who had died as a failed Jesuit priest in 1889. Bridges' 1918 edition of The Poems of Gerard Manley Hopkins revealed in time that Hopkins' stunted life had been a chrysalid state from those from whose cramped walls a broad-winged poet would emerge into the open air. Bridges' tribute to the other writerly friend of his youth, published seven years earlier, could hardly be anything but negligible in comparison. But the poems of Digby Magworth Dolben does have a curious interest of its own. The poems themselves are indifferent, at best the juvenilia of an artist whose promise had been thwarted by an early death. But Bridges introduced them with a lengthy memoir that depicts Dolben's strangely troubled life within understate, with understated skill. Henry James was intrigued by the story and wrote that it was, quote, very beautifully and tenderly, in fact, just perfectly done, end quote. Robert Bridges and Digby Dolben met in the early 1860s at Eton, then as now the most celebrated of England's public schools. Bridges was older and hardier, hurtier than Dolben, and as a distant cousin, felt a duty to look after him. The two were drawn together by similar inclinations and a shared outlook on life, being determined, artistic, and terribly serious. Bridges introduced Dolben to a circle of high church friends. Dolben took to them, and before long he outdid them all in his enthusiasm for the cause. He crossed himself at meals, read improper religious tracts, and eventually made forbidden pilgrimages to consult with certain priests of the prospect of his immortal soul. To his friends he seemed dreamy, abstracted, otherworldly, even saintly. To the headmaster he was an agitator, dangerously misguided. After Bridges went up to Oxford, Oxford Dolben's eccentric, excuse me, after Bridges went up to Oxford, Dolben's eccentricities increased. He became a novice in the English order of St. Benedict, signed his letter, his letters Dominic, and was furnished with a monk's habit which he wore in public, delighted it in with provocation, wearing it on one occasion through the streets of Birmingham, walking barefoot, surrounded by a mob. More and more he seemed to live in dreams, hoping to ignite his friends with embers of his fervency and planning the creation of a mystic Anglo-Catholic brotherhood at a monastery of their own establishment. Meanwhile, his health deteriorated, he left Eton for good, and lived between illness illnesses with a series of private tutors who 
whom his parents hoped would raise his Greek and Latin to Oxford standards. While sitting his entrance exam at Balliol, he fainted midway through and was disqualified. While preparing for a second try at Christ Church, he died, drowned in the river Welland, where he had been swimming with the young son of his tutor. He was 19 years old. These are the circumstances of the last years of his life, as Bridges gives them, but his technique as a biographer is subtle. His brief Life of Dolben is composite and many-sided, giving a range of textures from the incorporation of other voices, including that of Dolben himself, whose letters are excerpted and whose poems are called on to illuminate the recess of his inner life. And it is here, in the biographical application of Dolben's poetry, that Bridges is at his most suggestive. He identifies two strands that run through Dolben's poems. The first is his mystic and medievalizing Christianity, which came to dominate his writing in the last two years of his life. The second is his ardent affection of another, of his Eton classmates, a particularly attractive if in Bridges' estimation somewhat vacuous, member of their high church circle. Bridges calls this an idealization, idolization, but infatuation is a better term. The poems are plainly homoerotic. While editing the books, Bridges refused the suggestion put forth by mutual friends that he would write Dolben's poems to read as though they had been written for a girl, but he did agree to suppress the identity of Marchie Goslin, the seemingly oblivious young man who had so enamored Dolben, and who had himself died a few years before Bridges began his memoir as a British minister to Lisbon and a knight. Bridges does not ignore this part of Dolben's life. In a way, he seems to ruminate it deeply, but his expression is hesitant, extremely guarded, couched in almost Jameson aversion to any direct, conclusive statement. Was he grasping for an acceptably oblique means of treating what was still an impossible subject, or did he only dimly see the subtext that is so evident today? His account of Dolben's death presents similar ambiguities, and one wonders in the end whether Bridges intended to raise a possibility that Dolben committed suicide. To the extent the book is ever read today, it is by Hopkins scholars looking to shed some light on that poet's own frustratingly elusive inner life. For Hopkins and Dolben knew each other, wrote letters to each other, and read each other's poetry, though they met on only one occasion in Oxford at Bridges' instigation. The suggestion made by many biographers that Hopkins was in love, or at least infatuated with Dolben, is eminently credible, though not undisputed. After he heard the news of Dolben's death, Hopkins wrote to Bridges that, quote, There can very seldom have happened the loss of so much beauty in body and mind and life, and of the promise of still more as there has been in his case, end quote, and wondered whether Dolben's family had thought of publishing his poems. And that was it. That was the strangely troubled life of Digby. Magworth Dolben. Obviously, it uh, mostly recounts uh, the life of uh, 
bridges and um, yeah I had a really good time reading that obviously it's a darker subject matter in some cases but again it's always interesting for me to see especially those that have um, committed most of if not their entire lives to you know one specific art form right whether it be a poet uh, you know any field really so that was it hope you guys enjoyed it um, again this comes courtesy of publicdomainreview.org uh, really interesting website they have a lot of uh, amazing works um, where they look at obviously work in the public domain and uh, offer their own view or their own critique add to it so consider checking out publicdomainreview.org I have no affiliation with them but I've uh, really been interested in their work over the past few months so. anyway if you have any questions comments you want to follow up on this particular essay you can always email me hello at sleepandrelaxasmr.com that's all for this episode thanks as always for listening and take care